Welcome to Movie Left, a movie review podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Montrullo, uh, joined here by my co-host, Comrade Dracula. Comrade, what's going on? So I didn't realize this, but I've walked past the uh, location where they shot uh, Champion Records it, Championship final, at yeah. least 100 times. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so Street Corner? I, yeah. Yeah, where they filmed it, which is hilarious because the opening line when he's walking into the record store for the first time, we're of course, <laughs> if you're listening to this, you already know what movie we're reviewing. But he <laughs> says, uh, it's you know, he's talking about the record store he owns. And he says it's located in a neighborhood that attracts the bare minimum of window shoppers. Uh, that's not true. It's on Milwaukee Avenue, which is like the most boutique section of window shopping and and high end. You know, it's like where Levi's has their store and Adidas has their store and they only sell right. just those things. And it's like custom card shops and it's like like it's all the best restaurants <laughs> are, are on this strip, too. So the idea that it's, it's like the, you know, seedy, shady part of town uh, in in the late 90s or today is just like laughable. <laughs> but, <Right. laughs> um, but there's, you know, I was just like, where did they film on? And I just started looking up filming locations and I'm like. Oh, these are all like, really he's, well. At known one point, places. you can actually see him standing at the street corner with the street signs above him, like when he's when he's you know doing it to camera outside. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But so yeah, obviously, so I, I was know. just by the. I was just walked past it yesterday. Actually, my my mother was What's, here visiting, and we were walking up and down Milwaukee window shopping. So uh, when I looked it up, I was like, oh, I was just literally standing outside of it just yesterday. I walked past it. <laughs> like, what, is there a store there now? What's there? Yeah, it's it's a, a company. It's a clothing company <clears throat> called Rafa. They only just sell like really high end cycling apparel for people that are like <laughs> racers, you know, right. like people that race professionally, right? So it's not like a not like a regular bike shop or anything. Did um, they shoot the interiors? Which is why I've never been too? in there. What's that? Did they shoot the interiors inside of that store? Or did they have like a set built for I, I, that? I would imagine because you there's so many scenes where you can see them come in and out right. of those doors. So yeah, they they shot it in there. They set it up. Wow. Um, and they might have had, you know, like some of the scenes in like the back office might have been somewhere else. But I, you know, I, I'm not really sure why. It's not like there's any reason to shoot it somewhere else. The whole bottom floor of that place was probably just vacant for a while. And they were like, oh, let's just do it here. Just build, yeah, just build it. Build it on location. Mm-hmm. They clearly shot most of the movie in Chicago. You know, you could tell, you could see the very obvious. But w- before we get into that, we should I- should introduce the movie and our, and our co-host, Um Obviously, you know, you could tell by the title and what we're talking about today, we were reviewing the 2000 uh, Stephen Frears directed movie, uh, High Fidelity, based on the book by Nick Hornby. Um, one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, yeah, I, you know, we'll get into Oh, And also, of course, we have joining us um, our co-host, LaDonna. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I love this movie so much. So you, right. you couldn't have recorded this without me. <laughs> right, we, I we won't mentioned let you. it last week. I was like, oh yeah, we're probably going to review that. Next year. Like, I'm definitely coming on. So <laughs> we we we're super glad to have you on. And uh, yeah, we, yeah, this movie is is uh, this movie's really meaningful to me. I think that you know this movie came out uh, in 2000. I probably I probably saw it a couple years later, but. Uh, for men of a certain age, uh, and and you know w- women too, I guess presumably this movie was very um, formative. You know, it, it it. I first saw this movie in high school. You know, when you first start going through all the shit that uh, you deal with in relationships, this it, it really it highlights a lot of things. And I, I think 
I, I definitely view the movie differently now than I think I did then. I think I understand it a lot better now <laughs> than I did then. Um, but yeah, what 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 did what are your guys' relationship with the movie, uh, comrade? Uh, well, I was always a big Cusack fan. Uh, I remember when Gross Point Blank came out, um, you know, being from Michigan, I was like, hey, it takes place. Like, you know, I didn't shoot much of it in Michigan, just some aerial shots. But, <clears throat> you know, like, hey, it's that's Gross Point. That's everyone knows where that is. And, uh, you know, just just the premise of that movie um, that he's, uh, you know, a, a, an assassin for hire <laughs> going back to his 10 year high school reunion. I'm like, that's funny and clever. And. I'm sure you can get a lot of comedy out of that. And so I was already like a big fan of him. And that, that came out just a couple of years prior to this. So that was kind of like the, you know, the uh, wacky screwball Cusack of the 80s movies. Um, kind of kind of the end of that era, you know, this movie. And Logical sort of the beginning. Yeah. And, and, and kind of maturing and like getting over the teen angst kind of stuff. And then this is also kind of the introduction of an era of screwball Jack Black comedies. <laughs> so it kind of really knits those two eras together well. And it's, you know, there's definitely some parts of this movie that are like definitely, you know, kind of cringy 90s, like, oh, that's that wouldn't be funny today. Like that would be, wouldn't be played for last moment kind of today. Um, but then again, it's also, you know, it is a rom-com and you can get away with, you know, horrible, toxic, stalking behavior in a rom-com that would never... <laughs> We'll get the police I, I called say, on you in real life today. I, I gotta know. say, I still find that shit funny. And maybe that's just because I'm a product of that of that time, but right. most of that it, it's obviously like in real life would be would be super not okay. <laughs> right. But yeah, it just well, like the standing just, outside the window and the fucking pouring yeah, rain yes, looks <laughs> Yes, nine one one. Yes, there's a man standing outside my house holding a stereo above his head. <laughs> yeah, he, I believe it's John yeah. Cusack. I don't know what's going on, but he's been out there for hours just blasting the same song over and over. His best right. scenes are rain, though. Like, I feel like they do oh, it now it, just to, like... Especially in this movie, yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah, so, so LaDonna, what's your uh, kind of relationship with this movie and, and how you have how you came to see it and what, you know, what, yeah. what it meant to you, things like that? So when I went off to college, I got a job working at Tower Records. And um, anyone who's a Tower alum knows that, that that place just had something special. And all of the people that were just in love with music and the music nerds and you could be a freak and, you know, work there and all of that stuff. And then in addition to that, <clears throat> I actually wound up dating my supervisor from said record store. <laughs> and he was Rob. I mean, he just was Rob. And right. we had broken up, I think, not not long before this came out. And I think we're still in this sort of, maybe we're on, maybe we're off. It's just this weird period. And um, I felt like a little bit of each girl in one of his, you know, top five, <laughs> there, there was a little bit of each one of them in me. And, and it made me cringe so hard at myself for, for being a little <laughs> bit of all of them. And I think the main one, um, what's the name of his main uh, girlfriend that he's breaking up with? Laura. Laura. Yeah. So, you know, I was at a point where I had gone from being, you know, crazy goth, alternative, you know, weird hair, weird clothes and everything <laughs> to working for the Republican Party. My right. apologies. Corporate. You know? Yeah. Like and business, so right. I had changed and I wasn't, you know, the same girl so, that, you know, so, he knew. So at some, some point did somebody say, since when did this record store become a fascist regime? <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite lines. If only. Uh, I, oh, man. Real quick question, LaDonna. So when you worked there at Tower Records, did you did you do the scam where like your friends would come in 
and you'd like ring them up for like one album, but really like they were <laughs> they were taking like nine other albums with them and like just to try to try to make it look like they weren't stealing. Did you pull that one? <laughs> no, I didn't. I was too. It's a classic you know, classic retail scam. That's too that's honest. Like, right. But text, what textbook. I did do, we all got promos, and that was the really the reason to work there was how many free records you'd get, just ones that they played a little while and got rid of, and so that was really the thing. It was like why steal from there when you can get almost anything you want for free. Right. I actually used to have a bunch of those too because my uncle would give them to me. My uncle uh, works like he he manages bands within the music industry and he would just constantly give me these like like that's how like when I was when I was young in my cringier musical taste days I had like all these Kid Rock CDs were all like <laughs> promotional use only and, and like the funny so thing I was is a they, Republican and you listened to Kid Rock who is right, really right. the villain well, here <laughs> nobody's perfect but. Um, it was weird. They actually had some kind of crazy protection where like I would literally put them into like my computer to like burn them or rip them or whatever. And they would like the computer would auto eject it like they had some crazy tech in like the late like the late days of the CD before MP3s yeah. kind of just, you know, made them uh, superfluous. They they had this tech where they would literally spit <laughs> your you spit the thing out of the uh, CD drive. So, yeah, for sure. That was that was a lot of my uh, a lot of my, my music listening Bastards. in that time. Um but yeah, so that's awesome though. You worked with Tower Records. I, I miss Tower Records. I miss record stores in general. There was a great um, documentary about it a few years. Yeah, ago. Yeah, I watched. I watched that. Yeah, yeah, Colin Hanks directed it actually, yeah. which was which was pretty cool. Um, yeah. So you know, and and we've talked about this off air, like talking about record stores and things like that, and how they don't really exist anymore. And I, you know, I'm someone who still. I mean, I haven't really much since COVID because I don't really like you know going into super non-essential places like a record store but um i you know collect vinyl so i would still go to there's there's a couple like vinyl spots near me and everyone that works in a record store is some variation of rob or dick <laughs> or barry mostly mostly rob or dick like do those you are the... go in looking for original non-re-release zappa <laughs> <laughs> not re-released <laughs> underlined frank zappa record <laughs> No, I would actually, I, I, you know, my my new thing is next when I eventually, you know, decide to go back to them or whatever. Um, I'm definitely gonna look for some uh, original replacements records on vinyl because I, I th- that's something that's that I've gotten into that's sort of a pre- during the pandemic, right there, isn't it? What original replacement <laughs> right. records? No, that's our, uh, our 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 intro music. Uh, the replacement. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, awesome. it was, <laughs> no, it was know. a joke. I was making. A I joke. got it. I got it. I got it. Um, um, yeah, I, I real quick. There's there's a quite a few things in this movie that don't <clears> exist <throat> anymore. Um, being that it's the year 2000, uh, 21 years ago. <laughs> um, God, there was there was there was a uh, a YouTube comment I saw. I was just watching a bunch of clips for the movie, and mm. uh, there was a YouTube comment saying I was 20 back in the 70s. And I'm 70 now that it's in the 20s. And I love every moment of this movie. And I'm like, oh, my God. That made me feel old. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, I just I made a list of, like, all the things that don't exist anymore in this movie. Uh, of course, you know, first of all, record stores. Um, the next was home phones. <laughs> uh, right. Everyone, everyone's the next, got a house phone. The third one was pay phones. Yeah. Uh, right. Smoking at work. Uh, smoking in bars, uh, <laughs> magazines, <laughs> and then the last one I had is men who won't seek therapy. J.K. We still have those. Applause. <laughs> nice, nice. 
So at you least know, some things haven't I, I, changed. Ironically, <laughs> the only thing that 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 like still kind of exists is, is is like boutique record stores. So like Rob would still like if he'd hung on for another maybe ten years, he, he would still. He could be have like been rich. <laughs> a booming, booming uh, little fuck, especially in in like downtown well, Chicago was, or wherever that is. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean that that was really kind of like when the MP3s took off that the you know audiophile vinyl addicts also really kind of came back with the vengeance right. and we're like this whole digital thing like no we want we want the pops and the scratches and that mm-hmm. shit you know yeah. we don't right. want to see the restored cut of 2001 we want to see the piece of shit one that's been through the projector 500 times and you can't hear anything <laughs> right right and, and i think there's there's certainly like a, a glamorization and fetishization of things like that just physical media and things like that and I, I i fall victim to it like i said i collect vinyl i get it uh you know it's it's just there is something much nicer about just having the tactile feel of like holding a record in your hand and being able to fucking look at the liner notes and yes. being able to like you know and the cover it, artwork is huge you know right. we don't even, looks we fucking don't even awesome. think it's about like cover art- artwork anymore you know we made it smaller and smaller and smaller until now it's just a thumbnail that's on your you fucking can't even phone. see it yeah. Right. <laughs> like you be, like you can't examine the fucking cover artwork of like, you know. That's why I like I'm just, you know, right now as we're talking, I'm just flipping through my my recently added to my iTunes uh or my Apple Music library. It's all fucking bland. It's just like the artist's face. Uh, you know, nothing really going on in the background. Like back in the day, like you look at the fucking basically every album cover but like look at like sergeant pepper like that the way that looks on your phone it's like completely lost like the 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 idea of like hiding shit in the in like in making it actually like a a fucking piece of square art like it's just not a thing anymore it's just yeah i was watching genius aretha about aretha franklin they they do uh, a season on each genius and she was talking about liner notes and liner notes were such a big deal writing them and all of that and like we don't have that. Like, we no, can't it doesn't exist. Could you, yeah. you can't even look at a liner note of <laughs> like the fifteen hundred people that buy a CD of like a famous artist when they yeah. can still buy those. But before like, two thousand or before, uh, oh god, not two thousand. Before like nineteen ninety five, if you want to know the lyrics, like they had to be in the album. If they weren't yeah. there, you had no fuck. You're like, how am I supposed to sing along if I don't know what the fuck they're saying if they don't put the yeah. liner right. notes in? Like, you can't look. And up, then the yeah. internet came around. And I'm like, oh, I can just I can just look that up. Shit. <laughs> Right. <laughs> one one less thing we need to include in the records, which tragically diminished their value. Right. Yeah. No. So I mean, I I get that. So I you know it. So that is kind of the one thing that weirdly aged well. And I think you know, for sure, it was a lot of the digital boom. But I also think the the kind of cult favorite status of this movie really also led to a lot of that kind of reappraisal and reappreciation of collecting vinyl, like it. Mm-hmm. This movie is so good and was so um, seminal for a lot of people's, you know, uh, like adolescence and, and, you know, young adulthood that I think a lot of people, a lot of people I know personally, like collect records because of this movie, because it got them back into like doing shit like that. So it's, you know, uh, and I I think I'm sure that this probably prompted a lot of my collecting, you know, habits too with with records. So I, you know, it's definitely interesting to see the legacy of this movie um in retrospect but oh i forgot uh, to add my rob yeah. character was also a dj so there you go <laughs> Just had to see which was great I, I love by the way we we got to talk about his the fucking wig work in this movie the wigs <laughs> in, in all of the flashbacks i, I mean I, I they're so bad but like but intentional like that's part yeah. of the comedy of this movie like 
it's just and it, and it's crazy too because some of them are like like two years ago in the time span of the movie but he has like this just atrocious fucking mullet bang situation <laughs> going on like I don't know what that, but I, I really appreciate that because it really did lend that kind of air of, you know, uh, not incredibly, but like, you know, at this at the end of the day, he is retelling all of these stories to us, the audience. So he is the unreliable narrator. Right. Um, and I don't think he's necessarily like making things up, but, you know, it, it, it's just I think he remembers those days being a lot like goofier and louder than they were in, in a lot of these cases. And which, you know, plays out later because when he goes back and meets with the five women on his top five list, he realizes that he perceived all of those relationships completely the wrong, wrong way. <laughs> like completely the wrong way. That's the stage I'm at in life right now, too, is looking back at all and going, I was so wrong. This person actually liked me or, you know, whatever right. it is. Or they really didn't like me and right. I thought they did. Yeah. Right. Well, well you also yeah. you also see just, you know, like all the, all these women in real life today would never put up with a guy like this ever (laughs) (laughs) it would be like they would have no history together it would just like you'd you'd have one date and they would see all of his flaws right away and they would run the (laughs) fuck away right (laughs) so but because it's a movie because the movie has to happen we have to force this thing and we get to get all his neurosis and talking to the camera and breaking the fourth wall and everything so Right, which you know, I you know is is always like in screenwriting class they tell you the first thing like don't use narration. That's like <laughs> such a such a it, it's become such a cliche and such a crutch. But I don't think, for my money, there are very few movies that do it as well as this because it's not being used to kind of pad out the the inefficiencies of visual storytelling. Right. It's you know for, it's also primarily because it's being it's a direct adaptation of a book where most of the book is internal monologue. It would have a. It would have been impossible to really adapt it in a way without uh, doing that. Or if you did, it would have lost a lot of its flavor. Like this is one of the few movies I can think of where the narration genuinely adds to the movie. And I can't imagine this movie without him talking to us directly throughout the movie. And I think it'd be that's like also imagining, why people, yeah, it'd be like yeah. imagining Fight Club without narration. Like, right. Just, exactly. Like, what, <laughs> you'd be like, what am I? I that'd be interesting to do. <laughs> well, like, just and, take, and people, take the entire all the narration out of Fight Club. Right. And uh, yeah. <laughs> try to figure it out. <laughs> well, and that's why people have, I think, such a personal relationship with this movie and with Fight Club is because it's not only narrate, it's not, you know, like broad fucking narration to further explain a dumb plot or to dumb down a plot like in a movie like Forrest Gump. Um, it's it's narration that act, that that actually connects you with with the character and with the story, and it, it adds very to it, genuinely. Yeah. Right, it's very intimate. Yeah, that's so that's I, I really that and the uh, characters. Like the characters are so just true. We all know these people, not just the people <laughs> right. in the record store, but you know every relate. We all know them, and so I think you can all kind of connect it to your life right. in some way. Except maybe Ian. I don't know if anyone knows Ian. Knows <laughs> I definitely Ian. know of an Ian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Fucking Ian. <laughs> Such a... Tim Robbins, just one of his best performances. And, uh, you know, I love him as a dramatic actor, but he's so fucking funny when he just puts on some stupid hair and, like, just acts like a complete fucking... <laughs> you know, in this movie... And he, in the he, he'll work for free if he gets a custom wig made for him because he'll keep <laughs> using the wigs. Right. He'll wear the wigs at, like, parties and, you know, people right. be like, oh, is that the wig from you? And he's like, you know, he uses it for <laughs> Halloween costumes and shit. So he literally, did, like, worked for no money to get a, that, that custom ponytail wig. 
I'm pretty sure that he, this is the exact same wig that he uses later in the Tenacious D movie in the Pick of Destiny. It's like the same exact <laughs> horrible fucking like nasty stringy gray ponytail. Like, yeah, it's great. It's great. He's so, so, he's so good. I mean, the that's that's <clears throat> the scene that everyone remembers. You know, is the 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 three different fantasy versions of right. you know that that like <laughs> rapidly escalate. Out. Yeah. From you know, telling him telling him to get the fuck out to get being physically held back to suddenly his two you know, his two lackeys are like, you know, initiating the violence, busting his teeth out, dropping the a fucking weakest guy air of all conditioner of them pulls on the air head. conditioner. Yeah, out of the, the wall. The greatest scene. Yeah, right, right. I love that. Right. And and, and it, yeah, of course, that's the most you know, and I like that. The movie has those little weird moments of surreality where it where it is just like absurd. But it, again, it's because you're in his like head this entire time and and i think you know the movie the thing i realize now when i mention that i understand this movie differently is is uh i don't know if i necessarily like and i know he says it and i'm not saying that i didn't understand this the first time i saw the movie but it, it, it really helps you kind of recontextualize things because everyone views themselves as the hero of their own lives and the hero of their own story but what i really come to understand watching this movie later in life is that this movie is really just about him realizing what an asshole he's always been. And the fact that like most of these things went bad because he, you know, had fundamental flaws that he wouldn't deal with and that he was still, you know, struggling again. So it, 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 the whole thing. And I think part of the reason I probably didn't get this at the time is because I'm, I was young and like, you know, I felt the same way he did. He does at the beginning when Laura leaves him in the movie, you know, it's a very, it, it's very relatable when you're when you yeah. when you when you're going through that, but then you're Men like, oh will no! Literally, open a record store rather than go to therapy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right, yes. right. But it but it's just great up until the last fucking couple scenes of the movie. He still like doesn't like you know she she foists this 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 uh, record release party on him, and he still just like doesn't want to fucking do like even though he makes the effort to step to step forward and like say I'll put this record out. Um, by by the uh, Nazi youth shoplifters, as Jack Black calls them. <laughs> um, he he still is like you know, like when she was like, "Hey, you should do this record release party and come." And like the time he was like at the top of his game, you know, so to speak, in life, and he like had life by the balls was when he was like spinning records at this club. Yeah. And she she understands that about him, and she understands fundamentally that that'll bridge this this gap in his life, this fucking just, just sea of melancholy that he fucking lives in the middle of. Um, if he can kind of get some of that spirit back in him and then channel it into this new venture in his life where he actually, you know, kind of takes initiative and, well, it's and hard to make the transition. It yeah. is, it is from right. being a professional critic, which is what all, you know, music <clears throat> nerds are, you know, they, they love that part of it. And so it's really hard when you have in your head, all the shit you would say about it, if it were someone else's right. try to put that into the world. Yeah. Right. It would, right. <laughs> right. That scene, like where that, where the guy tries to buy the record and they won't sell it to him. <laughs> the guy's like, you guys are just total elitist. You think you're better than everyone else. No. Or, or, or I forget exactly. I forget what it, but it basically was like, yeah, it, they're just, um, it, it is funny because like the musical opinions are just constantly like, you know, especially from Jack Black. He just is, <laughs> is so fucking sure of everything he says. He's like, you know, oh, it was Jan, you fucking idiot. And, and, and then Cusack's like, no, no, who's the other guy? And he's like, oh, OK, whatever. Like it, it, they're just so sure of their opinions when there really is no basis in, in any kind of, you know. And yet puts on tangible. walking on sunshine for his Monday morning pick. <laughs> right. Like, what? <laughs> 
which which he did purely to annoy them. It wasn't yeah. like he really liked that song. You know, it was just this. This has the complete opposite oh, energy so of what I, what I know they're going to be listening to. You know, oh, Bell and Sebastian. Sorry, somebody <clears throat> died in here, but I'm going to put on something fun. <laughs> But this, right. you know, sad, and sad thing, old bastard music, yeah. right? The, the thing the movie does really well is is it's made by people who really understand what is good music and what isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, Cusack and was one of the writers on the show, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they poured over over something like two thousand different songs they considered to be on the soundtrack, and the final oh, wow. soundtrack is about seventy films, and then of course the soundtrack album only has like twelve of those seventy. Like, right, right. But you know, to to know what's really good or not, like this this record store movie does what every other record store movie got wrong, you know. And I'm looking at you, Empire Records. Um, <laughs> the, the fact that like you'd have 12 employees all working at a record store the same day, uh, you know, even if it is Rex Manning Day, uh, is just absurd. Like any real record store would have these three guys in it. You know, one of them's actually working; the other two are just hanging out. And occasionally get paid for their time there. Right. That and was all, all they you do, had in a room, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and all they do is argue about the slight nuance between their <laughs> tastes, you know, right. as though it's the most important thing, which it is, of course. But then when push comes to shove, you know, when Ian comes in, they're all on the same side against that. <laughs> guy, right. Right. You know? <laughs> so much like the political left. <clears throat> right. No. Very, it's very similar. I think. I love the music, the tape, the making a tape aspect of this. That is lost right. to this generation now. I mean, may I could make a playlist. It's not the same as the thought you put into, and he goes into it too. You know, you don't want to blow your load too early. You've got to, you know, kind of keep I, it up and down. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I I always would make mix CDs with that, with like the rules he gives at the end. <laughs> As in mind, like that's and, and it, it it is it truly is like a, a lost art. I don't even do it anymore. Like even for playlists, I don't do it anymore. I just put a bunch of shit on a playlist and listen on shuffle. Like I, I, I we put that, so much thought I into would, those. Yeah, yeah if, <laughs> right. If I had a, a big enough crush on a girl, you know, I was like selecting the songs. You know, oh what, me, yeah, what, same. What song would feed into the next one? And you know, as I'm making the tape, I'm you know thinking about like how many seconds between the two tracks to put. You know how much like dead air before the next track right, kicks in. Right. Imagining she's gonna listen to it and then just you know be like, wow, that was you know. And then like the beat for the next one comes, <laughs> like you know, thinking that all of that stuff's gonna get you laid, and you know occasionally it would. Of course, so then of course, like, <laughs> that's the, the, the whole point of doing all of it. Right now, I, I um, yeah, I, I same, I, I miss doing that because that's it's it, it is kind of a. It's just again, it's just a very real ritualistic thing that that I think is totally, and and I know we sound like fucking boomers on this podcast. (laughs) I think that's and and it's so funny too because we're talking about shit we used to do in like the nineties and two thousands, which was twenty to thirty years ago. Don't remind me. (laughs) Which which is so insane to think about. Um, but yeah, I, I do miss that that aspect of of music listening and of kind of, you know, making a mixtape for someone and like sequencing it and shit like that. Um, but yeah, let's get, let's get into some of the scenes that we love in this movie because we, we have a lot, there's a lot of, uh, stuff to highlight. <laughs> right. Right. Um, <laughs> right. We talk about the, to, to, the, to camera where he's just, you know, uh, where he's talking to the camera, breaking the fourth wall. I do. I love the scene where he's outside of the uh, theater and he, He's like, you know, I, I think this was right after Laura left him the first time. And he's like, you know, John Dillinger uh, shot right outside this theater. You know who tipped him off? His fucking girlfriend. <laughs> and like, <laughs> he only wanted to go to the movies. Like, <laughs> so great. 
Um, and and I also love like right after that scene, he has his mother calls him and he has that great uh, interaction with his mother, where his mother's <laughs> just fucking brutal to him, and she, she's just like, "What well, you move in? You know, you meet someone, you move in." She <laughs> goes, "They." <laughs> god damn that was some cold shit um <laughs> so good um yeah the the uh scenes where he where he you know starts going down his top five list to the audience before he actually meets with them again where he's you know giving the the kind of flashbacks uh i love that transition where he's listing off penny's favorite artists and he's like joan baez you know carly simon and elton john and it just cuts right to <laughs> her in college in the 80s uh, with Crocodile Rock playing is fucking just great. I, I really love the way this movie uses its diegetic and non-diegetic music in, in just like the perfect way in every scene. Like there's never a bad, and, and like not even say there's not a bad song, but there's never a bad cue or a bad like, you know, transition with the music. Like it's always just perfectly selected to move the story along and like to add to mm-hmm. the story. Well, I love when he when he walks into the club and uh, Lisa Bonet's singing oh. Peter Frampton. And he uh. says to the door guy, he's like, is that fucking Frampton? Is that Peter fucking Clear, Frampton? Clearly and not the black doorman just like nods his head once and he just walks yeah. past. Yeah, like doorman's like, yeah, I've been listening to this shit all night. It's like, and of I course, like, she's, that. She's like, me too. She's, uh, <laughs> she's singing like off, I don't know if you noticed, but like she's singing off key. But then of course, like the three guys are all enchanted by her anyway because she's hot. <laughs> Uh, and they're like, he's like, I'm not gonna like this song. I'm not gonna like it. <laughs> I always hated so. that song. Yeah. No, I kind of like it. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Um. Yeah. No, I love that whole uh, st- uh storyline with Marie DeSalle, and I love that um they it with and Lisa Bonet of course plays her, and now when they redid the show for Hulu. Her daughter. her daughter Zoe Kravitz is like the Rob character. They they you know basically uh, redid it so as a mini series. I heard series that's pretty or... good, but I didn't want to look into it and like mix my memory up of of this movie. But it it's is... a totally so... different thing. Yeah, you have to look at yeah. it as a thing unto <clears throat> itself. And, and right. if you do so, that, so... it's great and updated. Yeah. So she's not having a, a pre midlife crisis the way that Rob is. <clears throat> She does look back at things, but it's, I don't know. Sure. It, it just, it's so much more updated. You'll see when you watch right. it. And yeah, I do I'll, recommend I'll it. it yeah. did, they, did they cancel it or was it a mini series? I don't know. I thought there was going to be a second season. Because <clears throat> um, I think, okay, COVID I think happened. they did cancel it. COVID then, happened. Because, yeah. Probably because of, well, the, yeah, studios are also using COVID as an excuse to cancel shit that they, <laughs> you know. Wanted to anyway. Didn't yeah. make enough money for them, even though they're critically beloved. You know, shows like Glow on Netflix, which was fucking great. Uh, they canceled it, citing COVID. And even though that show is like one of the best reviewed shows they've ever put out, but you know, whatever. Um, let's see what else. Um, Going back to when he's thinking yeah. about its breakups, and he says, "If you really wanted to mess me up, you should have gotten to me sooner." And I cannot <laughs> tell you how many guys I've heard this from that their biggest heartbreak was like when they were like five, six, ten. I mean, it's it's clear that those first ones are so formative that it like right changes who he is yeah which which he you know he talks about um allison ashmore which, <laughs> but he was like fucking 12 he says 12 they 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 look younger than that but that could be just because i'm old but yeah that 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 scene was uh so funny um 
But yeah, I, I I love stuff like that in the movie. That that line, but it, it also now reads like such like a fucking melodramatic. Like if I knew that guy, I'd be like, dude, fuck, come on, like you're such a fucking clown. Like uh, it, it reads it reads so melodramatic now, but I I still love it. I, he's he's so good in this movie at that over the top, just fucking losing his shit moment. Like you know between that or like when he. <laughs> when he when he's talking to Liz and she says, "Oh yeah, I'm not, I don't I don't think too I, I'm not too fond of this Ian guy." <laughs> he goes in the back room and just has a fucking what fucking Ian guy and just th- smashes like po- like I lo- he's so good at that. This is being kicked when he's down. John Cusack is every man, and that's what I've always thought about him as an actor. We love right. him because he's just your average dude, and everybody knows him, and he is so good at yeah at showing us just what it's like to be that guy and just always feel like you're he, not you're not getting what you want he's he's great because he has this really like mopey kind of droopy face but he 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 managed he has this charm that that he can make himself attractive but he also can be made to look like the biggest schlub in the world very easily <laughs> it's a very it's an interesting you know face that he has for movies because he, he, he it's very flexible i think in that sense it's so, the kind of guy we, that you fall for when you know him a little better That's right what, yeah when um the I, I don't have her name up in front of me. The woman who played Laura uh was right. when she got the call from <clears throat> from John Cusack, uh she didn't exactly know who she was. Uh see she uh she's like, So are you the guy from Ferris Bueller's Day Off? <laughs> and, <laughs> and he's like, No, but I get that all the time, so don't worry. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I like. Yeah, they actually kind of do look like humbling. That's um, <laughs> well, I mean, the, that's great. careers kind of took off at the same time. You know, Ferris Bueller right, does no, take place sense. in Chicago, so there's there's some overlap there. I'm just, and she's. I mean, she wasn't from. She, she's from like the Netherlands. So it's I was like, gonna uh, say, what what is her accent? Because like at, at times in the movie, she tries not to use it. Yeah. But it's very like obvious in other scenes. Like I, I, it was a very weird like. Almost like a Princess Leia, like you know, British accent, not British accent, sort of thing. In this yeah, movie. it's either it's either Dutch or <clears throat> Netherlands, one of the two. Right, right. Um, <laughs> another just really fucking great, like over the top melodramatic line that he plays for last when the when the woman comes in the store is like, "Do you have soul?" And he just goes, "That all depends." <laughs> and then he gets a phone call, so he has to fucking like break his you know his melodramatic charade, like. He's just so good in this movie. I I really can't get over. And it's one of the last like great performances out of Cusack at the end of a really great string of movies. You know, Gross Point Blank especially. I I love that movie. That's one of my favorite films. And um, it, yeah, it, he was really fucking killing it in, later in his life. Even though he's you know primarily known to people of of, of you know older generations Say as anything. the yeah. Yeah, 80s comedy, 80s like teen sex comedy guy, basically say anything, oh, better if, off dead. If you want to see a, a really, sure thing, uh, a really great serious performance from John Cusack, watch the Brian Wilson biopic <clears throat> uh, that came oh, out yeah, I to watch in, that. I don't know what year it came out, 2014. Very recently, right. And so Paul Dano plays young Brian Wilson and John Cusack plays an older version. Of course, they look nothing like each other. Uh, they don't look anything like Brian Wilson, for that matter. But it's <laughs> just it's vaguely just droopy a faces. Really interesting uh, take on a biopic, um, <clears throat> and it's sad because you know Brian Wilson, who was a musical sad, genius, right. uh, really was abused by his manager and kept. You know, it's kind of like the almost a cliche story of like the um, 
you know, the band manager or like the Britney Spears father that becomes the executor of the estate of right. the rich person and just feeds off of them and like won't let them go <clears throat> live a life, you know? So, uh, and then of course, you know, genius suffering from mental, mental illness, um, you know, being hopped up on drugs and everything. So, right. Maybe uh, one of check the that movie out sometime. Yeah. It's yeah. called Love and Mercy is the title of the film. Yeah. I really, I really actually do. I didn't mean to check that out. And yeah. And Brian Wilson, of course, made one of the greatest albums of all time, Pet Sounds, and then just could not fucking bring himself to release the follow up, which he worked on and just shelved for decades, which was Smile, um, which now actually, like, most of it's been released and it's really good. But, it, it it is just funny, like the 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 same like mental illness that led him just create that amazing record and all those amazing Beach Boys records when they started getting more experimental. Also, like just completely crippled him after a certain point to where they couldn't even, you know, put their name of put his stamp of approval on anything. And now you have like you know Trump supporter Mike Love going around singing like the bubblegum pop you know Beach Boys hits for fucking you know. Hundred thousand dollars a pop at uh, at Mar-a-Lago, but you know, it's a shame. Yeah. It's a shame. It, I, I almost wonder if that would have happened to the Beatles if, if, like John and the other guys hadn't died. If Paul would just be like, you know, the fucking pop revival act. Because like, I feel like now Paul thinks like, I, you know, I can't. I, 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 it would be, it would, it would obviously sully the memory of John and George if I went out and like did did shit as the Beatles but if they were still around like if all the guys were still alive and like still not really on good terms you almost wonder if Paul would would be doing that like leading a like a Beatles all-star fucking I think when you're lineup. as famous as Paul McCartney you don't need to carry the name of the Beatles with you I mean he still obviously plays no, oh, right. his songs live is, right. that he wrote for the Beatles because that's his you know he can do that but sure uh yeah, it would be it would be very cringe if they were. It would just, doing I, I just can imagine like, a much different dynamic, right? You know, like like uh, fucking Journey still tours without Steve Perry. Like, what yeah. are you right. doing? Oh, so <laughs> they literally have a journey, and he's he's fine, he's good, but they have a a guy they found in a Journey tribute band. It's like their singer. It's like, oh God, God, it's like the so real life plot of that movie Rockstar, the the Marky Mark movie. Uh. Fucking sub- sublime did that shit too. Like, we'll just find a guy who sounds like Bradley Mill. We'll right, right. Nobody could replace him. Nobody. Nobody. And it's like, like, did you even really like it that much? If you can just swap out another guy to sing the songs that someone else wrote, like, what, I mean, what look, do you really I, I get, get out it. of it as a fan? As a, as a musician, I get it because it's like you're you're a you're ne- you weren't the the singer, so you didn't have all that money from like you know the residuals from writing and stuff. So obviously to keep your your livelihood going, you're gonna do it. But like as a fan, it's just like, ugh. you know, <laughs> like I, I, the one you know. I, I know you, your feelings on Dave Kroll are probably a little different than mine. But the one good thing I could say about him is that they never tried to him and Chris never tried to, you know, find a new singer for Nirvana. Like they just moved on to their own shit. Little and, known fact: Dave Grohl was also an alum of Tower Records. Oh yeah, yeah. He was in the documentary too. I remember yep. that. He was that was good. Um but yeah, so anyway, <laughs> back to high fidelity. Um let me see where I was in my notes here. Um yeah, you know, I, there's so many great the, the writing of this movie's great. I, I I really like a lot of his narration, especially. It's just and really And that's the problem for John Cusack. There isn't a lot of writing this quality <clears throat> out there. So he can't no. do this kind of performance all the time. 
he's had some good, you know, later in life. I mean, he unfortunately is it had gotten into the the Nick Cage like direct to DVD or direct to stream, whatever it is now. Uh, you know, take anything for just to, to to keep your you know keep pay your pay your mortgage, you know, whatever. His politics are great though. He's great on Twitter. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, he's a little he's very like nuts about the Russia stuff uh oh, still well. to an extent but but no i mean he's he is he's he's more left than most of hollywood i will give him credit for that um yeah, yeah but, but no he's he's blocked like a lot of our, like a lot of our friends for being like hey you're like really I fucking nutty he, about this russia he shit he just maybe he doesn't <clears throat> understand when people are agreeing with him sometimes i've seen that happen where he, yeah somebody he's will... a little weird will say something that they agree with but they're like you know it's twitter internet sarcasm mm. and he just kind of like you know it, but keep in mind when you're famous you pr- and you actually follow your replies <clears throat> it's got to be overwhelming <laughs> when your phone's just <laughs> right. blowing up constantly and he's a real guy i mean i've seen him here in chicago uh he was like the the headlining speaker for when bernie sanders came to a ctu rally like a week before they went on strike <laughs> but when aren't they going on strike am i right <laughs> so that was that was a lot of fun to see him warm the crowd up. I mean, there was other speakers before him, but he was like the you know, I guess penultimate speaker right. <laughs> prior to Bernie. Well, and Bernie uh, was bigger on the Russia stuff than a lot of people on the left. So, yeah. Well, he wasn't that night, so that was a that was a fun. If you ever want to really see like a real political rally, go to uh, <clears throat> you know a, a, a rally for a teachers union right before they're about to go on strike. There's nobody more fired up than that room. And, <laughs> you know, Bernie walking in there with very minimal security. I was like 10 feet away from him. I was just like, oh, good thing. They, there's no bad people here. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Just, just a lot of fun. And, and having seen John there in person was, was a great time. So that was the issue of the whole campaign. We were, always, I, I remember I was always saying on the podcast, like, cause there'd be people rushing the stage constantly and like nobody would even do anything to get rid of them. And I'm like, uh, you know, it, it's fine now, but when he actually starts winning a bunch of States, they're going to fucking kill him. So maybe you should, you know, beef your security up a little bit. Um, but you know, there's a reason Nicholas Maduro pays off the army to fucking have his back. <laughs> like, you know, that's any good leftist knows that that's the only way you actually can maintain power is to protect yourself because, yeah. Uh, your opponents are fascists, and they have no problem killing you uh, to keep their money in their pockets. So, or anyway, neolibs, yeah, same thing, right? Um, yeah, right. So, um, <laughs> I, I love, I, I, you know, there, there, there's just so many great lines, especially when he's talking about his relationship with Laura, where he really understands fundamentally that, like, all the stuff that he, you know, was doing with her, like, oh, I had one foot out the door the whole time. And he, you know, he says about it, it wasn't boring, it wasn't spectacular either, it was just good. Like, it, there's a lot of things that he, I think, realizes over the course of this movie that I, I think, you know, everyone in general realizes about relationships, you know, as you as you go along. Like, you, you it's just, you know, especially that conversation he has with her when he proposes to her in the bar. Um, and I also, by the way, I love that they never, she never really answers him, like, it, that, which is great. Like, that's, it, it's just a nice little touch at the end of the movie. Um where he talks about like, oh, well, yeah, you know, you, like uh, all these other girls, their fantasies and like, you know, they have lingerie and and, and it, like all this, like all this <laughs> shit about like, you know, how he's tired. of But he has that line, like, I'm tired of the fantasy. Um, and and he, I, I really appreciate that they that this movie is like not trying to it, it felt more real than most than most romantic comedies. I think it, it really, you know, 
it, it, it very much is about like the fantasy is is you know it's a fantasy it's just that it's stupid it's not realistic it's not something that's sustainable you just need to find somebody that you're compatible with that makes you happy like that's not gonna that's it and i kept wishing that my my real life rob character was going to come to the terms that that he does in this (laughs) maturity right yeah um and you know it wasn't happening because he was all about well i need sweaty palms i need someone that makes me feel like that and i'm like i fucking made you feel like that the first you know three months but it changes you know you get comfortable with people and if you're looking for that your whole life you're just going to keep chasing that so Right, right, and then you end up like him, like a you know forty in in his forties, running a record shop, and his girlfriend you know leaves him, and like he's got you know it's just yeah, yeah, um, you know, it, but I, I I really appreciate the maturity of the writing of this movie, and and a lot of it actually does come from the book, which I read um years ago, pr- I think when yeah. I was in high school when the movie came out, um, and and it is it is pretty similar, I think I think the movie does add a lot of flavor, um, I, well the book is set in the UK, which is also interesting uh it's set in london i believe uh so they you know they did move it to chicago probably on cusack's behest because he lives there and you know wanted to film there um but but i think that really added to it too to get you know we obviously wouldn't have made sense in london with with given the cast of characters but um I, i do really love how they use chicago as a backdrop for the movie like that was something i i thought they did well and you know comrade maybe you could speak to this but it you know it 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 was just nice that it never felt like it was being shot like in Hollywood trying to pass off as a city. Like he, he's there on the fucking the bridge and like it, it, it felt very like real and lived in to me. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I always hate what they don't, you know, when, when the city is a essential part of a movie, but they don't shoot in that city, you know, right. like it's, it's like, what do you like? Why? You know, if it, if it doesn't matter where it takes place, you know, a movie like seven where, you have no idea what city you're in, and actually, you never are told what city you're in. You know, it's like right. you look at look at seven. And it's like it's pouring rain, so this is probably on the east coast. But then they take a drive out to the desert, and it's like, well, wait, where were they all this time? <laughs> Which you go, they they shot all that in L.A., but they made it look like there's just a uh, you know a city that just is gritty and dirty and full of crime. You never really know. But this is you know I had to they practically be carried out of that film, by the way. <laughs> oh yeah, well the, that was. It's pretty bereft at the end of that one, um, but yeah, I mean they they really did a great job with with Chicago of the late '90s, and uh, you know so much has changed, but it still looks like Chicago. You know the L tracks that are right behind the record shop. Oh yeah, those have been there for a hundred years, and they'll be there for another hundred years. So there's certain aspects that never will change. But um, you know one of his one of his you know talking to the camera monologues is on the Kinsey Street Bridge, and you can see the Sears Tower in the background and. Uh, behind him, there's like another, uh, like a rail bridge that's raised, and that that's actually like permanently raised. They <clears throat> they took out the tracks and put in a building uh, decades ago, and those tracks are just at a ninety degree angle forevermore, <laughs> just sitting there. <laughs> but it's an iconic view, and people tourists come by there and take pictures and everything. But um, nowadays, you can't see the Sears Tower from that spot though, because there's twenty other skyscrapers in the way that have been built in the last twenty years. So. And that uh, that scene too is icon. That's like the iconic speech that he gives in that movie about you know yeah. ab- about what he misses about Laura and how some people just feel like home. Like that's one of his. That's one of the best mm-hmm. like monologues in the whole movie. So I can that's, imagine that being like a huge very, tourist spot. Yeah, 
For sure. Well, and, you know, I'm sure a ton of tourists walk by there and have seen the movie and have no idea that's the exact spot. You know, you got to really <laughs> right, look at right. it and go, oh, like, you know, like I did. I looked at that and I was like, where exactly is that? And then I was like, <laughs> you know, light bulb. I'm like, oh, shit, I ride my bike over that bridge all the time. <laughs> like every time I go downtown, that's the bridge I take. Um, you know, and realizing where the record shop was and being like, oh, I was just there yesterday, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and so that that kind of connection where you, where you really feel that the city is lived in and the place right. is lived in and you have to have that to be authentic to have a, a character who's really a record store owner you need somebody like Cusack who you know goes to Chicago clubs and knows Chicago bands and would know <laughs> you know be that immersed somebody like Jack Black who's like that much of a fucking you know audio nerd <laughs> that he could tag. come up with a with a you know that he could be funny about music and actually perform really good and really actually sing good Right, you know right. that was Which that was the great. thing. Is like nobody, nobody knew if he could actually sing really good until they went to go shoot the you know the ending. Yeah. Um, and apparently Jack Black actually tried to quit this film a couple of times because the the director, uh, what was his name, Stephen Frears, Stephen uh, Frears yeah. was born in 1941. So not exactly wow. the generation of the characters of this film. <laughs> so we mm-hmm. think that's really old. But keep in mind when this that was you know he was only like 60 something when that right. when they shot this. But still. And on set, you know, Jack Black would like pour his heart out and like just put so much energy into it. And then uh, Stephen Frears would call cut, and you go, "That was good." So like, like <laughs> Jack Black wasn't getting any feedback to know if what he was doing was was appropriate. Um, and he wasn't really direct with him as a, as a director, and wasn't giving him, you know, like saying what he more he wanted, but. Apparently, when they were shooting the end, when he's, uh, you know, what's the song, the Marvin Gaye song, Let's Get It On, right? They were originally going to do uh, a a different Marvin Gaye song, but it didn't have like the, um, you know, it was more like dance, fun, party song. It wasn't about, you know, falling in love, which really is is the pivotal, you know, kind of the the, the climax of the the movies when he kind of has that moment where he's dabbling with like, what if I do want to go sleep with this young music reporter who's you know, really into me DJing. Like he's, he kind of like has that last moment of doubt before finally committing. Um, that song really kind of is the, the, the climax of the movie. And Jack Black was like, well, this is a better song and I can sing it really well. And then the crowd's supposed to go wild, you know, when they realize what a great singer he really is. And apparently, you know, Jack Black was doing the best he could, but like the crowd, the, the, you know, the extras in the crowd, uh, weren't giving as much of a, um, a response to him as Stephen Fears, the director, wanted. So he gets up on the stage, director, and starts like chastising the crowd, <laughs> saying, "You're not giving the well, enough energy it. to his." Yeah. So Jack Black's like talking about this in an interview I was watching last night. He's like, he was chewing out the the, the extras the, who were the audience, but really right. I knew who he was chewing out me without <laughs> saying anything to me. Ouch. <laughs> so that's what I really yeah. So that's when I realized I had to like take it to a whole nother fucking level, right. <laughs> and that's the level we get with the uh, performance he gives as uh, the oh god, what was the name of the band? As the lead singer well, well, of it was Barry. Well, first it was Sonic Death Monkey, and, it, <laughs> and then it was suits. Kathleen Turner Overdrive. <laughs> right. Or no, they were on their way to becoming the Kathleen Turner right. Overdrive. But for Which, that night only, they were Barry Jive in the Uptown Five. Right. Totally reminds me. There used to be a book, a Beavis and Butthead book. It was called <clears throat> This Book Sucks, I think, and um. They had it where you would pick one word from each column and that would be your band name. And so it would be, you know, words like Sonic Death Monkey. That would wind up being right. your band name. So you could just, yeah. Right. And that's, yeah. That, 
Well, so you know, it's funny about Stephen Frears, and I, I, after I remember when I first, you know, watched the movie, I was like, oh, I gotta see what else this guy's done, and it's really like a lot of crap, like not really much since then. It really is kind of this perfect storm of like, you know, Cusack willing this movie to be amazing, and fucking Jack Black like early in his career just as this this lightning bolt in this movie, and and you know this amazing fucking source material that they had to work with. Um, cause Stephen Freer is like the most recent big movies he's directed, uh, Philomena, the queen, that Helen Mirren movie, just like Oscar Beatty crap that nobody actually watches except for Academy voters. Um, so he, it, this very much, I think was probably just a job for him and it, and it seems like it ended up just working out to be just th- this amazing, you know, confluence of, of circumstances where we, where we did get the movie yeah. that we got. He didn't um, even like the book. He read the book and was like, I don't like this. And the only reason he did it wow. was Cusack was already attached and he had worked with John before. Wow. And it was like, you know, they were just like, Hey, we need a director who's available. <laughs> you right. know, who who <laughs> could so shoot weird. in September, you know? And he was right. just like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. I, I wonder how much Cusack, not, not that he directed himself, but like how much of that, like how much influence he had on the actual making of the movie. Cause obviously you talked about probably the music. more than the director did. Right. <laughs> that it, it, like, he seemed like he was way more interested. Well, and even if you look at a movie like gross point blank, it has a similar awesome taste in music. You really think there are certain guys who, when they do a movie, you can tell that they have very hands-on, uh, you know, input on the music. Like people like him. Um, what? I, oh God, I had another one in my head, and I can't remember it now. But just people, or, or even like Jim Carrey in the '90s would always have like really interesting indie bands like play. You know, even for like his stupid movies for comedy, like it. Certain guys, I think, fundamentally understand that if you're going to have a movie and you're not, it's not going to be score based. It's going to be a mix of score. And, you know, uh, and, and soundtracks and needle drops like you really have to fucking tailor that shit to the like you you can't just pick like the most basic, you know, you can't be Suicide Squad picking, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody and, oh, and Sympathy for the Devil, like the most <laughs> obvious choice in every scene. And this movie, I mean, just the fucking songs like my one of my favorite and I used to joke about the song because of the way he sings it. But it's it's one of my favorite songs ever now. It's such a great uh, sad old bastard song it is uh most of the time by bob dylan like as he's leaving laura's house after the funeral after the wake um he's walking in the rain and that that fucking song kicks in and it's just such a perfect just just you know uh, sonically and just lyrically it just it it's so perfect for that scene and the vibe of the movie and like that that low point in his in his life and in the film like that you know, it, it's just that shit's not an accident. Like I, Cusack, for sure, was was like working heavily on you know soundtrack supervision. I think on on especially on scenes like that. Well, they didn't just consider two thousand songs. They the you know creative people at the top of this movie. They listened to two thousand songs. Like right. some right. of those songs were songs they probably had already listened to a hundred times. Other ones probably not. Like they were that dedicated. You know how long it takes to listen to two thousand songs. <laughs> Yeah, and, and like and making notes about them, right? it, you know, like circling which one. You're like, yeah, I'm not really sure that, like, you know, like whittling it down to just seventy. You know, I'm amazed they got it down to only seventy songs. <laughs> <laughs> right? No, same. I um, yeah, I, but I, I just love it. Uh, yeah, and like a song like that, like most of the time was like a. I, I'm sure it was a minor hit in 1986, but that was like not from Bob Dylan's peak. You know that that's a fucking hidden gem. Like, there's a lot of songs in this movie that I know, and if I heard them like on shuffle or on the radio, I'd be like, "Oh, I love that song." But 
were not fucking hits at the time. Like they were just, you know, really good songs that you really had to, you know, you had to be a music nerd. You had to be a music connoisseur to have that in mind to use for the movie in the first place. I think for a lot of these songs, Quentin um, Tarantino, very, very yeah. Perfect. Yeah. That's that yeah. was one of the people I was searching for. Yeah. Perfect example. When you hear just, the, right. the opening guitar, chaos of dick dale's miserloo opening pulp fiction and you're just like <laughs> right. what in the fuck is that and then you heard that song used in every fucking commercial for the next 20 years <laughs> right right some... that wasn't like a massive you know like pop hit at the top you know yeah yeah uh, dusty springfield you know pulled that one out of the archives and then that right. was used in every goddamn thing so yeah there, there's there's definitely a very type of uh I'll just say obsessive personality that would spend that much time um, not just not writing songs or writing scenes around the song, but just knowing how to use the two together flawlessly. Perfectly. Right. Yeah. Right. And like, even and you, know, you mentioned Quentin, we look at the soundtrack for once upon a time in Hollywood. It's all 60 songs, but like none of them were big hits. Like none or none of them were like songs that you still hear today on classic, you know, 60s radio. It, they were all like obscure, like that Neil Diamond song was was fucking great. the the main the the main song that the uh, brother loves uh, traveling salvation show. Yeah, whatever the fu- yeah. Like, I mean, that everyone knows a- who he is, but that wasn't one of his most. No, no, songs. I never heard that song. And it's an amazing movie. song. It's amazing. You know? It's like better than any. It's better than fucking um, Sweet Caroline. It's like such a good song. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so yeah, I, I that I really think that that adds to a movie, and that's something I've always you know. And not that I've been able to make a ton of shit, but I've always aspired to find like songs like that to pair with anything that I'm making visually, like to, to th- that just aren't obvious choices. Because you can always tell when somebody's trying to like, like I, I hate to shit on this movie even more, but yeah, like a da- like David Ayer with Suicide Squad, where he was just like, man, I'm gonna have so many, I'm gonna be, this is gonna be like a Martin Scorsese movie, and I'm gonna do a million needle drops, and it's like just the most obvious shit you can imagine. Like it's just so fucking, you know so uh, cookie cutter so I, I really appreciate when people really do put in the extra work because it really you know made the movie in a lot of ways um yeah uh, uh, uh let me just go through my notes again here okay so yeah cusack um really amazing too i i think you know that his performance is extra good because he really in most of these scenes has nobody to play off of like it really almost is is not that dissimilar from like tom hanks and castaway where you literally have nobody to play off of for a good 50 to 60% of the movie and still just kills it. Like still, you know, it doesn't feel phony. doesn't feel like it's like a, yeah. you know, it, it really does a good job of being that character and not breaking that character, even though he's breaking the fourth wall. Like he never feels like he's, you know, giving like, you know, it's, it's <laughs> funny you bring narration. up Castaway because I'm, I'm pretty sure one of the top fives in the movie is like top five records. Desert you Island. Strand right? on Desert <laughs> Island. <laughs> well, Which, of course, Tom concept, Hanks had right. none. Tom Hanks had no music to listen brutal, to. Brutal. Brutal. It could have given him a fucking iPod, like an iPod one, <laughs> your first generation. Uh, if that movie um, would have come out like two years later, it, oh, that yeah. would have been in the movie. It would have been, been the, the ad that movie galore. was made for. Yeah. Right, no, 100%. Yeah, well, so actually, I, I think he even says that the, the first time he says top five, he says my desert. I think the concept is, like, if you only had five things you could take with you to a yeah. desert island in general, like, that's the top five. Like, my desert island, top five, you know, records. Um, 
which yeah i it, that's another thing that i think a lot of <laughs> a lot of people kind of took from the movie is where i i like me and my friends would do that for for years after this movie we'd just be like all right top five you know uh, movies the movies that fucking you know uh, to watch uh, you know in the morning like whatever it is like top just, five breakup songs yeah right 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 for sure i think that was something that you know along with kind of music critique and music curation was really a a, a hallmark of this movie it was one of the legacies of this movie is the kind of the incessant list making to the point where now it's like just a thing where they're you know, a list like listicles, like list articles that websites only fucking, you know, produce those as their only form of content and they get viewed by millions of people. So I, I really think that that was a big influence on that as well. Um, but yeah, uh, let me see here. Oh, so <laughs> I love, uh, I love the little Springsteen, um, uh, not a cameo, whatever you want to call it, where he's like thinking about like, oh yeah, just be like a Springsteen song. And then you said Bruce, like, fucking strumming a guitar like talking about you know relationships and shit um i do like seeing him though before he became this like problematic old weirdo that he is now <laughs> it's a, it, was, it was great to see like classic you know late 90s early 2000s bruce when you're still fucking kind it's of kind of breaking peak. the uh, fifth wall there really you know sort of a <laughs> right almost like a wayne's world kind of a thing super meta right right um yeah. But yeah, that was cool. Apparently, that was supposed to be Dylan. I th- I I remember reading something about how that was. So, or, or in the book, it's Dylan, but they he didn't want to do it, or he couldn't do it, or something. I don't know. Something. He like was that. busy shooting a Victoria's Secret ad. <laughs> really? Is that really what it was? <laughs> oh well, I was. I mean, I was joking, but you know that Bob Dylan actually would shout a Victoria's Secret. I, no, I don't. Right? I didn't know this. No, what, really? He, <laughs> like he he was in it, or he directed it. He's in the commercial. Yeah. Oh, that's so weird. That's so lame. Yeah. Come on, man. What the fuck? <laughs> so, I, it would be hilarious to find out that it actually was why he couldn't be there because that was about the time when he did that. But, you know, was you it really? know that? Dylan no, shot Victoria's Secret commercial? No, I don't, I don't yeah. remember this. Like, uh, just unsexiest guy you could put in a Victoria's Secret <laughs> commercial. Like, what even, I think about women in sexy lingerie, prime, I think about Bob like, Dylan. <laughs> even as Prime, he was never like a sex symbol. He was always this kind of weird guy with this weird voice who just happened to write this, this these amazing songs. Like, you know? oh, right, right. Dylan, Dylan's like, well, you know, I wrote Blonde on Blonde. You know what that was really about, right? And it's like, oh, God, we got to like, put this guy in a commercial. Why don't you sing good anymore? <laughs> uh, no, but, but that's funny, too, because like, that was definitely the era where Dylan's voice like went to complete shit. But I do appreciate that they found like the one hidden gem in his late career with, with most of the time, because that's the one song where he doesn't sound like... T- or he, he still kind of sounds like shit, but they tailor... He really tailors the song to his, his voice, you know? Like... It, it, it's it's got like like late career Tom Waits like just his voice is just completely fucking washed. But there's this one yeah, great the, the, song. Tom Waits' voice has always been that way on purpose <laughs> since he's you since know, he was young. It's, it's so weird because like I fucking love like the more like I hope I don't fall hope that I don't fall in love with you and stuff like that where it's like it is gruff but it's also really melodic. And at a certain mm-hmm. point, he just went like complete like. I'm just going to gargle fucking rusty screws before I go into the vocal booth. Like, I don't <laughs> fully get it, but I, I like I don't know if it's maybe an actual voice thing or if it's just, you know, it's easier for him to sing that way. But did you um, see that Netflix movie the Coen brothers did where it's like six short vignettes about the West? No, mm-hmm. I meant to watch it. That's Buster Scruggs. Yeah, so or whatever the. the fuck movie was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one. So the, the best one is Tom Waits as a. Uh, 
what do they call him? Gold panner, forty nine er, whatever. Yeah, he's right. painting for gold. He's prospecting, right, right. right for gold. Yeah. yeah, and he's all out. He, you know, they don't. I don't think they say exactly where he is, but he's out by himself in the West, and it is amazing. Even if you. You know, just skip ahead and watch just that one. <laughs> if you're short on time, watch that one. It's amazing. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, like Tom yeah. Waits, National Treasure. He's really funny in movies. Like he's he was great in uh, Mystery Men, where he plays like the wacky inventor that sells them all like the non lethal weapons, <laughs> like the like the fucking bubble yeah. gun and shit. Like he's just really like a funny fucking Down dude. by Law. You've seen Down by Law, right? No, I've never seen that. Oh my God! You're so different, people. Ladonna, you've seen Down by Law. Please tell me you've seen Down by Law. When did this movie come out? In the 1980s. No, Jim Jarmusch. Fucking alive! Jesus Christ! It's the only Jim Jarmusch film worth watching twice. All right, all right. Um, uh, Oh, oh, so one one scene I absolutely loved that it was it was definitely a more mainstream commercial song in the movie, but it's just such a great comedic scene is when he meets with Laura at the bar. Uh, and and she thinks like they're gonna have a nice conversation. <laughs> he just goes, "So have you slept with him yet?" <laughs> um, and, and and you know she she basically tells him that she did. <laughs> or no, oh no, wait, I'm sorry, I'm I'm I'm, con- I'm conflating scenes. But the scene where he where where she's at his house and he asks if if, if that she slept with Ian yet. Um, and she says that she hasn't, and he just leaves. And, and he and spends fucking... the next 24 hours obsessing over yet. What does yet mean? Right, but the, but when he leaves, we are the champions, just bla- <laughs> like the chorus of we are the champions, just blare. The comedic timing of that scene as he like pushes, kicks his door open triumphantly is fucking great. Um, but yeah, and, that, and then he's a neurotic mess, of course. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I love that. Um, Can we talk about Lily Taylor? Um, yeah, she's yeah in a lot of his films and that Sarah character I mean the way the two of them they're like sitting there going yeah I'm totally just gonna stay single for a while <laughs> not gonna be with anybody and then that moment of just they're pushed together I mean that was actually another aspect of my uh, my Rob relationship was that we had both just broken up with people too so in a way I was that Sarah and you know I mean, we all know someone. We all know someone whose life after the after you were together just went to shit, and you just feel terrible about it. And when you check in with them again, their life is still shit, and you feel terrible about it. Right, right. That was also the worst Harry had the movie. That was like the real fucking, <laughs> and he had the, that horrible like like eighties like bad to the bone fucking bandana on with skulls on. His oh, skin. he was totally going through an Axl Rose phase with that look. <laughs> right, yeah. right, very, very, very much so, very much so. Um, but I, I love yeah, that, but, if, but you know that's. I don't. I don't know if I've ever exactly had that situation where, like, you're you're commiserating with somebody who, you know, also just got dumped, and it's like you both realize that you're, you know, you're both someone else's second choice, <laughs> which is just <laughs> right. like compounds the sadness, you know. Right. And you're just kind of like, I'm just good. We're just going to do this for, rebound. for therapy until we find somebody better. We know that's what we're doing here. <laughs> um, and then imagine that, but, that but that's why that's lasting three years. <laughs> Right. right. Yeah. Well, that's what you hope doesn't happen. But usually, yeah. it does. Um, but yeah, I, that that's that whole scene was hard to take because we've all seen that or been in a spot like that. Right. Like, oh god. Right. We're right. Americans. We only want our favorite <laughs> thing, not our second favorite thing. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, I lo- I love though that that scene where he, right after he sleeps with Marie DeSalle, he's like, you know, you're wondering how does he do it? He's grumpy, he's broke, he hangs out with the musical moron twins, and he gets to sleep with Marie DeSalle. Like I love, I just love all those little interstitial, you know, where he's whispering so that the person in the scene doesn't hear him, even though in other scenes he's like talking on a full subway car and like nobody. 
<laughs> Nobody's listening. It's great. I, I just I, I love the way they they you know the, the how how little care they gave to to like whether or not that's happening in real life or not, but how it just kind of always works in the scene that it's in. Um, let's see. I yeah, it's it's very meta breaking the fourth wall, you know, because really it would be, you know, if you're really breaking the fourth wall, everyone would think you were just an insane person or today would just be like you're just a normal person talking to somebody on, on ear pods. <laughs> Especially you know? on the subway, right? <laughs> yeah. Especially on the subway, people just wouldn't even bat an eye. But um, yeah, I, I, I do love like after he, you know, he and, and it's great because like in those scenes where he like he's like flirting with Marie DeSalle. He is able to just be like the most sad, depressed, like <laughs> loser in the world, but then like turn on this, this charm. Like he, he's very effortless, like as an actor to do that. And uh, you know, I, when I think he that... expresses how he talks about his past relationships, you know, like there's this certain amount of humility and you know taking responsibility. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, uh, yes. Yeah, so then, of course, we get that, that great uh, Ian scene in the store. Um, Oh, the other thing when you were talking about uh, John Cusack's probable control over this film, the fact that he has Lily Taylor, who was in Say Anything, and the fact that he has a sister in a lot of his films as well, I think speaks to the, the control thing. Like he half had. of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His sister almost, I don't want to say always annoys me, but like I, 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 I could take her or leave her in most of the movies that she's in. She's really funny in this, but like I just, uh, yeah, something about her. I don't know. She's all, I'm not taking sides. I'm not taking sides. You asshole. Right, she's very she's very schizophrenic in this movie. Her character, because like she goes from like I'm cool with you, or uh, you know, to you're an asshole, to I'm cool with you again, to you're an asshole at the funeral. Like it's just very, very all over the place. But but it's, it's, she's always funny. Yeah, I will say. He needs somebody to kick his kick him in the balls a little bit. I love her right. character in Gross Point Blank too. Oh, she's so funny in Gross Point Blank when uh, he he's like, look under the table. I left you something, and there's like a huge wad of money taped under the table, and she's like. <laughs> Yes, right. yes. And she's like celebrating as she's pouring gasoline all over the office to light it right. on fire because they're they're like shutting down the business. That's so uh, good. Just um, hilarious physical comedy there. Right. Uh, what do I have here? Uh, yeah. Okay. So I love that little the little the kind of little storyline at the end with the with the skateboard fucks like the kids that you know <laughs> come in and rob. I, I I love how like when he when he chases them down and they like. Uh, you know, toss out what they were stealing. He like starts critiquing their musical choice. Like, what are you guys stealing for other people? Like, it's just such a great. Like, he can't not be a music snob, even though even when he's furious right. that people are, like shoplifting from him. Because you know he would have done the same thing as a teenager. Oh, you know, of course, he's, he of is course. these kids, and that's of why course. he connects with them and why he empathizes with them. You know, he's, right. When he, he's threatening to smash their skateboard, he's like, "How much? How much did you steal? Is it, do the math. Is, is it worth losing right, this?" Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I love Jack Black's Yanni T-shirt in that scene. Of, <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> he's wearing a Yanni T-shirt. Yeah, oh it's great. It's, it's just like Ironically, Yanni, of like course. Just, right, of course. <laughs> um, really good shit. Uh, and right after that scene, we get you know Laura's dad died, and then the fucking greatest <laughs> scene ever between Jack Black and. Cusack, because of course, first he goes, Laura's dad died, and then Jack Black is just like, oh, drag. And then they just like keep talking about something else. And then he goes into the back office and and, uh, and Barry starts singing uh, that the night Laura's daddy died song to the tune of the night Chicago died. It was just so fucking funny. The night Laura's daddy died. Brother, what a night it really was. Mother, what a night of really angina's tough. Glory be. Brother, 
It just starts making up <clears throat> lyrics and he comes out and starts slapping the shit. It's so fucking funny. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. So then from there we get the, the you know, that, that great uh, scene at the wake or well, at the funeral, of course. And then later at the house um, where he walks away in the rain and they kind of, you know, reunite. Um, He's I, in the garden bed, completely covered in mud. Right, right. <laughs> like they love just, to torture John Cusack. <laughs> he he loves he loves doing it to himself. He loves just being like the the biggest fucking sad sack on the <laughs> face of the earth, just covered in mud and fucking rain and shit. Um, but yeah, I, I I really like that. You know, the interaction they have in the car where. You know, and it's it, it is the way with life works sometimes. Like it's not always like you give this big speech to win back. So it's, sometimes it's just like you know, some shit happens, and you're just like, yeah, you know, like <laughs> like let's you, you want to do this, yeah. Um, but but I love her. she's to him. She's like, you know, it's either that or I go home and stick my hand in the fire. You can burn, burn cigarettes out of my arm. And he's like, no, I have a few left. I've been saving them for later. <laughs> And that's a little bit of an homage that too that that who she was, you know, the the older her or sorry, the younger her that you know was more punk and into that stuff. That that person is still in her beneath right. whatever clothes she's wearing or whatever else. Yeah. Right, right. So then, and and you know, of course, we talked about the ending of the movie already. Um, but yeah, I I I, I also love that. Scene. I love how like just just so fucking how how dreading uh, it Cusack is in that scene of like letting letting Barry sing, and he's like just. Uh, we have to introduce a band, but just you know, please, please don't leave don't until leave. until the band's played and we, we we've played their whole record. <laughs> he's just like he's just so fucking. Um, but yeah, but that was great. And 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 you know, to the point you were mentioning about like nobody knew if Jack Black could sing. This was even before the first Tenacious D record had come out. So like, unless you were like a hardcore fan who had like seen them play in like their small gigs in L.A. or had, like watched their weird little. Like HBO well, the, show that they had, yeah. I feel like I but those were just like that. like ten yeah. minute long sketches played at like four in the morning, you know. So right. it was it was if you were really if you found those little hidden gems, then you knew about them. But right. and they're super funny you know. when you go back and watch them now. They they're very oh, much yeah. the basis for the for the movie they made. But um, yeah, rocket it, sauce, right, rocket right. sauce. <laughs> <laughs> go watch. It. Um, I wonder how much good, of that was shit. Jack Black's improv, just him, you know. Oh, I, well, I think a lot of the, yeah. the, the, especially like the, the HBO show, was a lot of his improv for sure. And I think that was like kind of, you know, before everyone got sick of him, like that was really like peak, peak fucking, you know, cocaine Jack Black, where he's just <laughs> no, insufferable but hilarious. Like I, I was talking about this scene in particular, the you know the stuff that he does with the song and Laura's daddy oh. and all that. Yeah. Oh, oh, that that, that very much seemed like it was improv because like yeah. he like he fucks up the lyrics and like. <laughs> I also am not sure he's ever actually heard the night Chicago died because he's not really singing it to the tune of the night Chicago died. I, I feel like that was maybe like something somebody on the day told him and he just like tried to fucking riff with the lyrics. Um, but no, it was it was really funny. I love that scene. Um, yeah, and then the great, of course, the great closing scene where he where he you know sings the the fucking great rendition of Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. Um, great movie. I, I fucking love it. Just really top to bottom. Just not just every scene is enjoyable or, or just well made. Um, yeah. What, what, what kind of what are your guys? Uh, anything else you wanted to hit from like the trivia, comrade? 
Uh, not really. I mean, I read through the trivia a couple of weeks ago. I did. I didn't rewatch this last night or in the last couple of days, but I did watch it about two weeks ago, and that's when I kind of was like, "Oh, we should review this because I, I <laughs> right, knew you right, liked right. it." I just I didn't know it was your absolute favorite, but um, I went back and reread through some of the notes. I'm like, "That's a you know, comedies don't usually have like any deep, profound things in the in the trivia sections." But um, yeah, I don't know. It's just it holds up. It holds up really well. Really you know? He was ahead and of his time in talking about, like, you know, I'm not a class worrier, but, you know, I, I don't think we were, most <laughs> of us were aware of that kind of thing at that time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the stuff with Charlotte. Yeah. She <laughs> just, um, I, I do love that scene where he meets up with her and he's just like, and I realize something. Charlie is horrible. <laughs> she just talked, or Charlie is awful. She just talked shit. And, 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 I, we, and we were talking before we went out there, uh, LaDonna, like, we, we all know someone like that too. Like, just mm-hmm. the, the like the highfalutin like like rich liberal that you know in your life who just talks like 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 and when you're you, younger you envy them you you want to be that well, right it's funny because he's he says that thing where he, he's like this is I, I, this is really how she talks like like nobody's ever thought of the concept for <laughs> it's incredible but then she does the exact same thing when he meets her up at this dinner party and it's it's like insufferable and i think he he realizes in that moment like no there's nothing profound or intelligent about you you're just <laughs> fucking insufferable <laughs> i can't believe i ever thought you were like just this. wealthy just wealthy right right, right. wealthy just, friends that have nothing to say right nothing of interest to say but, my yeah. favorite line is i've read books like the unbearable lightness of being and love in the time of cholera <laughs> they're about girls right <laughs> or, or, i think i understand them they're about girls right <laughs> um yeah no just just great writing overall great performance by cusack um yeah so what would you guys so, yeah oh go ahead no, I was I was gonna wrap us up. So whatever, whatever point you want to make. Oh uh, well, I I thought I thought we were each gonna come up with our own top five. Sure. Of, of, of what? What? What was your top five? Category? Whatever. Whatever you wanted it to be. Oh fuck. Uh, uh fuck. Right, well, do you have do you have one? I'll try to think of one quick while you're while you're doing. <laughs> oh, you guys didn't do your homework. Fuck. I thought about um, my worst breakups. I did do that. I have one that that I would probably talk about. Mm, well, I thought we were doing top five songs for whatever particular occasion. We so can do that. I just did top five uh, opening tracks on the album, also known as side one, track one. Ah. And I thought about this for a while. I didn't. I spent like two hours on this last night <laughs> <laughs> because you know we don't really listen to albums start to finish anymore. And I had to like think like, well, I I've got tons of you know favorite songs on albums, but like I had to go back and look and see what. Well, was that the opening track on the album? A couple of them I, I knew off the top of my head, but other ones were like, what is the opening track on the album? I don't remember. And I kind of feel like, you know, to be the a best opening track doesn't necessarily mean it's got to be the best track on the album. Right. But, you know, it's it's got to be a, a track that, you know, gets your attention, that is, you know, represents the entire rest of the album in some way. It's, right. It, it can't just be, you know, the Beatles had never had a good you know, didn't have very many great opening tracks. They would do like little intro things that weren't really a song, you know? Right. Uh, and there's a lot of bands like that where they wouldn't really open with a real song. They would open with like a little musical interlude, so to speak. Well, I think some um, people used on their albums the same kind of algorithm he used when building a mixtape. You know, you have one that's kind of, you know, gets your attention, gives you the vibe, and then you maybe mm-hmm. slow it down and so yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah, um, but then you have a few cases where you know the opening track is, if not the best track, it's it's still like sort of really grabs your attention, 
And I could do one of these where it would be five bands that you've all never heard of. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was kind of like trying to think of things that are more mainstream. Because that's the thing about top five lists. If nobody ever has ever heard of, of any of the things you've done, it, it's meaningless. you know. And in sort of our digital world, and we can listen to anything we want on SoundCloud or Spotify or YouTube, you can really get into such a, a, a you know niche that you will know the names of dozens of artists that nobody outside that genre has heard of right which is great that you can be exposed to whatever you want to and find those you know those rabbit holes but it it makes coming up with a a, you know coming up with a coherent top five list a little bit more difficult so in no particular order i'm going to run down my top five here top five best opening tracks the first one is Chemical Brothers Come With Us from their album of the same name, 2002. You probably don't know how it goes because, you know, it is sort of techno, but whatever. Uh, the next one is The O.C.'s. The song is Gilded Cunt off their album The Hounds of Foggy Ocean, 2008. Great title. The, o- right. the O.C.'s are probably one of my favorite sort of garage revival West Coast surf punk um, and they put out a new album like every three months, <laughs> I think. Uh, the next one here, this was a toss-up. This was hard for me because I, I wanted to sort of like, you know, revisit some of the best stuff I liked, you know, in years past that I don't necessarily, you know, like now. But then if I go back and listen to it, I'm still like, oh, yeah, that's that. When I was 18 and that came out, that was that was my fucking thing. Like that was raw motion right? right so the first one is a little bit heavier and the second one uh is a little bit more cerebral but they both came out the same year 1997 and the toss-up was between deftones around the fur from their album my own summer and the opening track on the danny warhols album the danny warhols come down the song is just called be in it's a great intro very trippy hmm. Um, so yeah, I couldn't decide. I was I was sort of putting it in an order at that point, and I'm like, eh, I couldn't pick one or the other. I almost replaced one with the other, and I couldn't decide. So uh, the next one, I didn't want to just do all guys, so I thought about one of my favorite uh, women artists, Joanna Newsom. Love her uh, when she came out with her triple disc album, Have One I Mean, 2010. Uh, there are some tracks on there that have made me cry before. <laughs> They're so emotional and. Wow. The opening track doesn't really do that, but the opening track is really like an amazing, you know, sort of introduction to what the whole rest of the album is going to be. So the name of the track was uh, Easy. It's got it's like ten minutes long. It's got like a horn section and harp and strings, and it's it's wonderful. Go listen to it. Um, but it really does a great job of of kind of where she transitioned from quirky gr- kind of screechy voice to doing much more orchestral. You know, the kind of stuff you can sit for three hours through and just be blown away by. Uh, and then I, I guess my my last one here, I think this is probably my favorite, you know. There's there's some songs I like more than some of the songs on the album here, but just as the most cohesive album of the 90s that really just encapsulates the 90s. Uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Siamese Stream, 1993. It's got to be my favorite. And the opening track, Cherub Rock, is just like, you know, from the very start, that snare drum uh, opening up, you know that you're going to hear something very different. And people have heard it so many times that, like, they don't, I don't know, I think people take it for granted now. But for me, that, like, anytime I go back and listen to that album, start to finish, and it starts off with that snare drum, it's just, right. 
iconic snare drum hit. Yeah, that song. yeah. And, and 13 Years Old was when I really first started to get into rock music, you know, so it was a whole new world to me. Prior to that, it was just whatever pop song was out on the radio. <laughs> yeah. Right, and we had that right. brief window from like 1990 to 1994 where what was really good music was getting onto MTV. Yeah. And then as, as soon as 95 hit, that was, it was, that was done, you know? Right. So after Cobain so killed to, himself, that was the fucking end of it. Like right. Right. And then right, just really right. went downhill. And Alice in Chains too, you know, and it was just, it was like, right. you know, Hey, alternative rock radio. Welcome to 92.1. You know, it's, you know, you know here's three doors down. And <laughs> just, I oh, almost wonder God. if Cobain killing himself made people who are shitty feel, co- cause he would always talk shit about bands he didn't like. I almost wonder if like all these shitty bands were like, he's gone. It's safe for us to, to put this crap out. Now. <laughs> right. Like, because like Cobain's if, dead. Everyone posts their shit ripoff songs. <laughs> right. Right. Because nowadays, like if he was still around, he would have fucking destroyed them and made them look like clowns and, oh, and on MTV and yeah. all those. Other and he would have done so. it to their faces, but you know, even when he did the Rolling Stone interview, he made a custom T-shirt that said "Corporate Corporate Rock Magazine Still Suck," and that had to go on their cover, <laughs> which is great, yeah. right? So to, right. just to like kind of come of age, you know, young adolescence at the time when you know nineties grunge rock whatever you want to call smashing pumpkins uh was was you know that heyday was really you know it it sort of radicalized my musical politics in a lot of ways (laughs) and now they Um, sell nirvana t-shirts at target (laughs) right (laughs) right um but but i did have a one uh bonus track Right, because in in regard to radicalizing my politics, I mentioned how the Beatles didn't really have strong opening tracks, and in fact, they would have little, you know, sort of musical interludes, like he opening in Sergeant Pepper is like a little audio Audience. art project. It's not really a song, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, it's like an introduction, but they did open up the White Album with a very strong track oh, called my "Back in the Beatles USSR," song, right? <laughs> which was a total. <laughs> A total fucking diss track to the fucking Beach Boys, who they had a rivalry with. They, you know, were friends, but they still would kind of well, write songs that were implying that the other were inferior, right? Right. Um, but it was also an homage to them too, like their early stuff, the the harmonies they would do. Well, like that, they, uh, you know, the Ukraine girls, like they even do the we, like they do like the Beach Boys, like oh yeah, like harmonization to- total- in the chorus of that song. Yeah, it was California Girls, basically, right. but doing it about the Soviet Union. And of course, when they, you know, McCartney finally played it there in like 2002 in in, in Moscow, and they went fucking crazy, you know, because it was the first <laughs> right. time they oh, so were able to see that. But, uh, you know, it's a love letter to the <clears throat> Soviet Union at a time when we were still, you know, 1968, height of the Cold height War. Of, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, Paul wasn't as, as political as John was, obviously, but like still, like that was... You know, we're the most popular band in the world, and our opening <laughs> track is a love letter to the Soviet Union. <laughs> but even so. they, and you know, the original lyric to that was "I'm backing the USSR," not instead of "I'm wow. back." But they were, they're like, "This oh. guy is fucking killed." I, I, either Paul or John had suggested that, but they eventually, like, there's a lot of stuff where they, you know, early in their career would like sing stuff like in a way that it was like you know even like the the i can't hide thing they're obviously singing i can't i get high on the record like <laughs> shit right. like that where they would be like oh no this is what we were really singing to the to this to the suits who didn't want to like you know 
have a fucking meltdown, but like they would they would do you know funny shit the like guy, that. The guys that don't know their own daughter. <laughs> to me, right, <laughs> right, exactly. But they they used to do shit like that to make themselves laugh. I think uh, with like like little funny like ways they would sing things. Um, but yeah, no, I love that. That's that's one of uh, you know my all time favorite Beatles songs. Um, and yeah, it's great because it, at at a time where where America was so feverish in their fucking you know anti Soviet. Um, bullshit and you know obviously we've seen a revival of that in in modern times but uh yeah great great track um for sure i actually jotted two quick top fives down while you were talking um well done yeah i know so you're really good at doing stuff while we're doing the show and i can't do that like i have to prepare everything ahead of time because i can't multitask once i'm in record mode so right right well done all right, so two quick ones. Uh, one is my top five Prince tracks, um, and I tried to put stuff in here that wouldn't be necessarily like the. I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't exclude Purple Rain, but like the, you know, these are my favorite Prince songs, uh, in, in an order. Actually, I'll go from five to one. Uh, number five, it can never take the place of your man, which is a great, like almost like proto punk kind of. Uh, Prince like song, which I don't think a lot of I don't I, again I wasn't alive at this time, so I don't know how big of a hit it was, but it's certainly not you know one of his most fondly remembered tracks. But it's really good, um, really uh, has a good beat to it. Uh, let's see, number four, uh, the Morning Papers, which which is probably actually my favorite Prince song. I just couldn't in good conscience rank it ahead of these other way more successful ones, but. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Have you, are you are you guys familiar with that song? It's not a very well known Prince song, I don't think. I I don't know that one off the top of my head. No. Okay. You, you should, after we after we after we pod, you should check it out. It's 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 basically Prince doing the Beatles like way better than the Beatles ever did. <laughs> it's just this amazing piano like uh, rock ballad, not even rock ballad, but it, it's just this amazing piano ballad. Um, and it, it it's a really like the lyrics are the most like uh open i think he's ever written like you know when it's not about like sex or or god or fucking whatever you know else he's writing about like it's the most open like relationship song he's ever written um and he he it was he wouldn't play it for a while because he was so like fucked up about his breakup with um maite mate whatever the fuck his 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 longtime girlfriend was Hmm. uh who it was about um and he wouldn't play it live ever after that but like it was really a good song um let's see number three raspberry beret fucking great song you know just (laughs) really great story song i love uh you know songs that just kind of tell a cohesive like you know three minute story where you're where you're in that moment but it, again just a great track uh you gotta have also, you gotta have one of the one of the top ones in there that that track is also just like it has such a weird like the beat never changes you know it's, right it's like everything's sort of swirling around this beat that never changes at all the whole song it's it's really remarkable right no it really is good um and warren zevon does a great did a great cover of that with his side project the uh, hindu love gods which sounds a lot like like sonic death monkey or any other fake band name you can come up with <laughs> um but yeah great great song um purple rain number two i mean the you know the, the icon of all icons as the song goes and you know for my money maybe the best solo in ro- in rock history just that that incredible fucking you know, two minute solo that he does like eight minutes into that song. <laughs> like, just such an overbloated song, but it's so good. Um, really just great. So, probably one of some of Prince's best guitar work. Um, 
you know, right up there with like, uh, you know, the little opening riff of when doves cry, but like, he, he's just such a great fucking guitar player. Um, and, and, you know, I think a lot of people who really follow his music know that, but like, I think just a mainstream audience, they wouldn't think of him that way. But I mean, dude is like a top five all time guitarist. Uh, and he would love to like show that to people. I know I'm sure, I think we've talked about it on the pod before, but like when he played, um, at the, the rock and roll hall of fame in like 2006, when George Harrison got inducted and he came out and played, uh, while my guitar gently weeps oh everyone, my God, and just yeah. fucking shredded the, <laughs> like a three minute solo and then just throws his guitar up in the air and it never comes back down. And he just walks <laughs> up. It was like the quintessential, like he knew exactly what he was doing at all times with, with the way he would, he would like, you know, make public appearances. Fucking great. Um, and number one, uh, let's go crazy. Just, just mm. absolute favorite Prince song. Uh, you know, it, it's so fucking good. It's so good. I was hoping you were going to say "Pussy Control." It's <laughs> <laughs> good, but no. Um, yeah, no. I, I, yeah, I, I, let's go. It's just so good. You can't not move when you hear that song. Like, it's just such a fucking like, you know, energetic. And and, and it, it combines all the great. It combines like the dance Prince and like the. Uh, you know the guitar playing print. Like it, it really is the perfect blend of all the different princes and the Jesus Prince because he does like that thing at the beginning about like <laughs> you know the afterworld and all that shit. The little like sermon. Mm-hmm. He does. Like it, it's like literally the perfect amalgamation of all the different aspects of Prince's personality into that one song. So yeah, that's number one for me. Mm-hmm. Um, now, at least you didn't go with, with 1999. I was going to be like, eh, that. I like it's, that it's song, great, but, it's but like, if you if you pick right. that as your number one, I'd be like, okay, that's that's no. like Nirvana. Never mind if I pick that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what about what about so. the Beatles? What about fucking Beethoven? <laughs> 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 the Fifth Symphony. Um, exactly. Right. No. Um, um, you've seen the the Jimmy Fallon's uh, Prince Ping Pong story. Seen that before? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah I've heard. Yeah. I, and yeah. The Chappelle I, I guess show. that's where I've heard it. Right. Yeah. It's got like twenty nine million views on YouTube. So right. Hope, right. You've seen it. Yeah, well, I, I've heard that story, so that must have been where. But I, I, I've, I, and I did read a Prince book, so maybe that's where I heard. It. But yeah, but the, about him inviting Michael Jackson over for ping pong and just like <laughs> fucking school, like he 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 loved to just shit on Michael Jackson all the time, which I really appreciate about him, especially now. Yeah, <laughs> knowing what we know about Michael Jackson, it's like they constantly would just try to be because Michael Jackson was like, you know, a lot of things, but he was not at all cool. So like. <laughs> When Pr- and Prince kind of knew that, so he always would love. He, he, I think he hated being compared to him because he's like, "I'm cool as shit, and this guy's not at all cool." So I'm just gonna b- take every chance I can to just doesn't bully play the any shit instruments either. Doesn't right, fucking right. compose shit. I mean, the only reason why Michael Jackson was a thing at all was because of Quincy Jones, right? And and look, it, the amazing songs, but like you know, it, it, to compare him as an artist to Prince is insane. Right? It doesn't even come close. Um. All right, my next list is a little more goofy and fun. Um, it <laughs> top five songs by fictional bands or musicians, oh. you know, like within within a movie. Um, let's see, number five, uh, "Royal Jelly" by Dewey Cox and Walk Hard, <laughs> the Dewey Cox story, which <laughs> I, is such a good fucking like hilarious satire of like these super self serious. <laughs> Um, music biopics, and I, I love most of those super self serious music biopics. But it's also really funny to see the tropes like so laid back. You know, like walk. It, it primarily is a spoof of Walk the Line, which is a movie I love. But it also it's one of those things where when you talk about like the tropes from it, it's fucking hilarious. Because like in one scene in Walk the Line, like Johnny Cash like gets so mad he rips the sink off the wall. So 
constantly in in walk hard like dewey cox will just walk into a room and rip like 15 sinks off <laughs> off like this row of sinks on a bed like it's just it, it's a great movie but yeah that's that song is really funny well, it's like his bob it, dylan parody song with yeah yeah what, what were you gonna say? yeah i was gonna say it's hilarious <laughs> that like after they they lampooned um you know rock biopics so well that like hollywood still does all those fucking tropes you, like you, you would have thought it would have been over for that but yeah but you still we still get Bohemian like Rhapsody. the <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody like the whole movie is not real like half, half the shit oh, they show so never happened and, and it's just completely like you know when he, he like goes to see the band uh playing he's like hey I could be your lead singer and they're like are you any good it's like they were roommates already what the fuck are you talking about like they wouldn't have known he was a good singer and they're right. roommates um, was, yeah, uh, watch the Ryan May fucking destroyed that movie. Yeah, but yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and like you know, the the producer who's telling them like, oh, we'll never play that song on the radio. Cut to them playing that song on the radio. Like that never right. happened. That right. that scene never happened in their lives. <laughs> it was that movie could have been so. It, Sasha Baron Cohen was originally attached as Freddie Mercury. Oh, yeah, wow. and he left the project because he was like, this is some Disney fied bullshit. Like I'm not gonna do this. He's like, like I I believe in, in <clears throat> being historically authentic. That's why I'm gonna go go play Abby Hoffman for Aaron Sorkin's movie about oh, the Chicago God. Seven. Right, well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> nobody's perfect. Um, but um, go watch yeah. the 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 pitch meeting YouTube. There's the whole series. Uh, Screen Crush does uh, of of pitch meetings that are pretty fucking funny. Watch the one for Bohemian Rhapsody because they just rip apart all the things they made up for no reason for that <laughs> uh, in that movie. All right, cool. my number. I'll I'll check that out for sure. My number four, um, uh, going up from uh, Get Him to the Greek uh, by Infant Sorrow, which is the fake band that uh, Russell Brand fronts in that movie. Um, I, I, that's a movie that I really enjoy. I think I, I, I think I sent it to you a while back. You weren't crazy about it, but I, there's something about that movie. It was just the the last time Russell Brand really had kind of a big moment in in like a U.S. film. Um, I just still find that also to be really funny. Uh, that movie, it's very much. Yeah, like I think a, he's hilarious. I just didn't find that movie it, you know, like he right, was. Right. Well, I was like, he should be in a better movie than this movie. That's <laughs> was fair. what, was no, that's what fair. I thought. Um, but but some of the music actually was really good for that movie. Uh, some, the guy who wrote a lot of the music to That Thing You Do, which may or may not come up later in this list, wrote a lot of the music for that movie as well. And you can kind of... T- I always appreciate when they when people take extra time to come up with like decent songs for the fake musicians in, in the movie, you know, whatever movie they're um, putting on. So yeah, that, that song I really like. It's like the last song he plays in the movie. Uh, let's see. Uh, number three, Killer Tofu by the Beats from from the, from the Nickelodeon television show Doug, which I might be alone on this one because I'm a little <laughs> bit younger than you guys. But no, I know that song. I didn't okay, even really okay. watch that one, but I was aware of that. It was so it was so ubiquitous in the culture in the in the early '90s. That song, yeah. I think. Um, but I, wasn't, yeah. I wasn't nerdy enough to watch that cartoon much, but like but, I had some younger step siblings that would watch it, so I would I would see it. Right, right. Great fucking song. Uh, they were just like this really uh, funny, like like Beatles kind of, sort of Beatles parody band, but like, mm-hmm. yeah, good good shit. Um, <laughs> let's see. Number two, uh, Shallow from Star is Born. Uh, you know, <laughs> a movie that I had no intentions of seeing or had no, I didn't think I would like that movie. I was just like, yeah, whatever. It's just a thing. Uh, number one, Bradley Cooper, really good fucking director, like visual director. Just he, he's really, he's one of those guys who like, and you know, and anyone who's seen the the hilarious clips of him in the audience from inside the actor's studio, like just asking all these really good pointed questions. 
could tell that he would be a student of the game and that he would eventually become a really good director. Um, but I was kind of blown away by how good that movie was. Um, what and was the name of it again? I missed the... A Star is Born. I didn't watch that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With, uh, what's her name? With Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. Yeah, so that was, it was his first movie that he directed, and I, I you know, highly recommend anyone watch it. That it, 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 It's a movie that, I, yeah, I, like I said, I didn't expect to like, but I liked it way more than I thought I would, because um, it, it's actually really well made. And the song for it is, is, is fucking great. And it's, again, it's not my style of music, typically, but... It just that was a song they put a lot of time into and it was really fucking uh, good. So that uh, yeah, that's my number two. Um, and of course, number one, I had to put that thing you do because I mean, greatest the Oneaters, fucking, right? <laughs> by the Oneaters, <laughs> greatest uh, fucking fake movie song, fake song for a movie of all time. I love that movie. It's such an underappreciated gem. Uh, Tom Hanks. I, that might be. The, I don't know if that's the only movie he directed, but it's. I think it was the first movie he directed for sure. Um, I think it was the first. Yeah, there's probably some yeah, other ones out there. Yeah, but yeah, he. It's not something he does super often. But yeah, it. It's so good. It's so funny. Like, if you haven't seen that movie, like, go, go watch that right now. Like, stop listening to the <laughs> last five All minutes right, and go Fine. watch that movie. <laughs> right. Um. Yeah, it's such a good movie. That you know, kind of, sort of like, like an, a, a satire, but also an homage and a love letter to the kind of one hit wonder pop groups kind of in the wake of the early Beatles in the sixties, like all the American equivalents of them. Yeah. Um, well, the thing just, I liked about the end of it was, you know, the, the guy who was actually like the, the, the drummer was the only good musician and he kind of made the band what it was, was really more into jazz cause it was more complex. Um, but right. it wasn't so, you know, flashy and what the kids were listening to. And then, and at the end of it, the, the lesson is like, you know, all, all this pop stuff that's going to come and go, uh, doesn't mean shit compared to playing what's real to you, you know, which for right. him was jazz music. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that being said, I mean, that, that title track, like the guy who wrote it, um, Fountains of Wayne <laughs> singer who died recently, Adam Schlesinger, I think his name was, but um, just an, incre- an impeccable fucking pop tune, in- impeccable three minutes of, of, of like, you know, 60s style pop music. <laughs> Um, that just fucking rocks as that weird little simple solo in the it's just so good um you can't when you well, hear that and i love that you get to hear the version of it that they were playing that sucked like before right, right the, the slow version <laughs> yeah yeah that's, that that that's... movie we, we talked about the brian wilson biopic with paul dano right. was the young brian wilson there's a ton of scenes like long scenes of him trying to figure out like these really bizarre arrangements for really famous songs that were on Pet Sounds, and you're like, what the fuck is he doing? Right, and everyone right. in the studio is like, what the fuck is he doing? And like gradually you see it, how it turned into a masterpiece. Right, so it's right. like a much longer version of what you get to see in uh, uh, that thing you do. Right. And I, and, that, and that's also a fun trope that I, I think movies have since ripped off where, where it's like <laughs> the drummer is just like, fuck this. This needs to be three times as fast and just starts <laughs> hammering the drum beat and like the rest of the band rushes to follow up and it ends up being like this amazing uh, masterpiece. But that's also an iconic, you know, speak about opening drum, uh, you know, snare hits are just like bass drum hits like that. That opening like that's fucking iconic. Like you hear that shit and you're immediately, you know you're in so yeah that's that's my number one um for fake musician uh songs sweet i do not have a top five list but what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna work with the two of you over the next few days and i'll come up with some top five lists and every day we can share out our our lists whatever they are i think top five rockumentaries would be a great one um 
there's some others that we can talk about and then share yeah, our yeah. picks and share this Absolutely. out. Yeah. Absolutely. That'd be fun. And then everyone who's um, listening, share yours with us. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, um, oh, you know, real quick, what, uh, what would you guys give this out of uh, five hammer and sickles? High fidelity, the movie we were talking about half an hour ago. Ten million. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I'd give it, uh, I'd give it four out of five. Um, you know, it's not like it's this, as for a comedy, it's gotta be really up there, you know? Right. And it, this does a great job of all the things it tries to do. It does it better than, as I mentioned, o- almost any other record store comedy does, um, with attention to detail and actually having people involved who, you know, live that life and aren't just, uh, you know, writing about what they think kids would be doing, uh, in the nineties, but um, you know, it's not Ghostbusters. It's it's not doesn't rise to that level. But uh, so yeah, four out of five hammer and sickles. All right, yeah, I'll get, I'm I'm an easy five out of five um, for this movie. Definitely, like I said, you know, I'm not. And again, to me, it's not. I'm not saying it's the best movie of all time. It's my favorite movie of all time. I think uh, just because of what it you know meant to me at a very formative time in my life and and just coupled with the fact that it's a fucking great movie uh for me it's an easy five out of five so uh and Ladonna, would you would you say a million? Yeah, ten million. million. I, yeah, infinite. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't we'll need count it that to, as five. <laughs> five, out of five. I don't need it to fit into a genre or anything, and I don't think it right. really does. Um, you know, for it to be great, I just think it's it's unique, right. and um, I think what we talked about, you know, the the level of um, work that they put into finding the songs and just the characterization. I yeah, it's one of my favorites of all times as well. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, that about wraps us up uh, for this episode of Movie Left. Uh, if you like this and you want to hear us talk about politics, listen to our main show that we do every week, Move Left Idiots. Uh, we release that on Wednesday nights. Um, yeah, if you want to uh, support the show, the best thing you could do is rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Uh, follow us on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash move left, facebook.com slash move left idiots, uh, patreon.com slash move left. Merch is at tinyurl.com slash move left pod. Um, which, uh, LaDonna, what's your, uh, the, the, the GoFundMe you wanted to highlight? Uh, oh, it'll be at the top of my um, profile at Polly Bent, P O L I B E N T. It's a friend of mine who's struggling with leukemia, just had a blast event, went through chemotherapy, and she needs to get to City of Hope for a stem cell transplant, which is, you know, one of the last, um, you know, remaining hopes for her to, to be around for her family. So she really, right. we've tried every different charity and organization, and we can't get anybody to help her get there. So if people could chip in, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely do that great again great healthcare system we have yeah. in this fucking country yeah. um yeah well so, okay so that's uh your twitter i am on twitter at move underscore left uh and as always i'm on twitter at bike slutty yeah we'll see you next time i've been willing to try
sell five copies of the three EPs by the Beta Band. Do it. Good. I know. 